So what I realized in working with dying, that I have to grieve my way into love. I have to open to all of the stuff of what that's about. And to open to suffering and pain is the art form of the game. And the ability to not go into denial and into reactivity, but to be with what is, requires the inner work to be rooted in the many planes of reality so that you can offset one plane with another. Because this plane of suffering is so intense and so massive and there's so much of it that if you just live on that plane, you burn out almost immediately. And when you burn out, what you do is you close your heart. Welcome everyone to another Ram Dass Here and Now episode. I'm Jackie Dabrinska, your host, and you all, you are the Ram Dass community, people with your hearts and minds and compasses po pointed towards consciousness. Thank you for tuning in. Today we dive into episode 229. It was recorded in Marin in 1992, and it's a part one of two parts. The next part will come in about two weeks. And it is another great lecture. It's so good. Uh, he's really diving into this thing called living, but he's doing it by speaking about death and aging and LSD trips and embracing the things that we want to push away, pain, falling apart, grief, lows, sickness, and diversity. I know I sort of make it sound uh, maybe a little bit challenging, but it's really brilliant. He reminds us that we're not here to get high. We're here to get free. And so the only thing we can really do is work through our own models that we have and to open our hearts to what is. There's this real passionate part towards the end where he's talking about honoring diversity within unity. And in it, he reminds us that this dominator culture is detrimental to everyone, to everyone. He doesn't use the term dominator culture, but it's the best one I know that names a system that by design pits people against each other in a thousand and one ways, whether it's race or gender or sex or class or religion or even size. And to heal that, we really need to honor our differences while becoming allies to each other. And Ramdas talks about the way that we get to unity is by recognizing and hearing each other's differences and each other's pain and grieving together. So I really look forward to a deeper dive discussion about this and so many of the things in this episode. And you can join us for that at the next Soul Pod Satsang, where we meet, we learn from each other's stories, and we deepen into community. It's sort of like his journey to the East reference in the beginning. So come be a part of that. Just sign up to get the invitations by going to ramdas.org slash fellowship. And if you've listened to some of this, you know that I love plants and herbs. And so in the beginning of this talk, he's talking about echinacea and ginger and all of these great plant allies. Um, you know, I work with lots of them, with clients on, you know, touching various planes of body, mind, and spirit. And for a few months now, I've been talking about this great morning drink called Magic Mine. It's this little green shot. It's super zingy, and it has all of these incredible plants. Echinacea, ashwagandha, rhodiola, lion's mane, turmeric, 
Bacopa, and others. And these are all plant allies that are helpful in things like reducing stress and improving energy and enhancing brain power and so much more. So this is the last um, time we'll be offering that 10-day window for you to get a subscription at 50% off. So to do that, go to magicmind.co slash Ramdas and use Ramdas as your code during checkout. That's magicmind.co slash Ramdas. So we thank all of the folks that helped make this episode and all of the others possible. These include our sponsors, you, our donors, our sound engineers, our archivalists, and all of you for tuning in. We hope that you are nourished by this episode and these teachings. And as always, whatever good may come from it, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. So here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Good evening. Uh, I have to explain that I have an incredible um, thing, bronchial cold something. Might not be unfamiliar to some of you this year. So I am so full at this moment of echinacea and golden seal and ginger root and ginseng and vitamin C and this and that that I... <laughs> that I have no idea what you will get this evening. Last night I was doing a telephone radio interview and my voice faded around 15 minutes into it. So I have hot tea and I'll speak very softly if you don't mind. And hopefully we can hang in together. Otherwise we'll just have a long and deep silent meditation. Hmm. It might be better actually. I always think when I'm backstage, even though this has been going on for 25 years, I always think, what am I doing here? What is it I'm supposed to say? Why did these people come? What is it they want? Why are we together? And I always turn to my guru in my mind. I say, what do you have in mind? And I always find that the most living evenings happen when I stay close to home. That is, I stay pretty much autobiographical to share with you processes that I'm going through. Because though each of us doesn't have the same story, we each have a unique way of manifesting our dharma. Still, our stories give some kind of support to each other. It's always to me as if we are all on this journey that Hesse used to, in his book called Journey to the East, we're all on this journey together. And uh, we spend a night in a hermitage and we share notes of what's been happening to you on your journey. And m my life has gotten, I don't know what to say at that point, has gotten what? I could say so weird, so beautiful, so empty, so loving, so true so simple that there was no way when I was um, 30 that I would have imagined that I would feel the way I do at 60. Part of the wonderful thing about being 60 is the desires start to quiet down a bit. The ones you haven't mastered become not attached to 
become irrelevant, and you have a lot more time than you had before. <laughs> it's funny, I'm preparing a lecture on aging for a May workshop in New York City, Madison Square Garden. When I think about aging, I always get this funny image that I spend a lot of time meditating, and when I meditate, I usually draw in my awareness and sit quietly for long periods of time, close my eyes, draw my awareness in from listening to so much and so on. And I do this voluntarily, and I think it's one of the most profound things I do in life. It's funny, when you get old, you lose your sight, you lose your hearing, you have arthritis, you can't move around so much. It's the absolute ideal time for meditation. Much more than for shuffleboard. But it's a cultural value system that the game is to stay young versus getting free. We're entrapped in an incredible number of dysfunctional myths, I think you should know, that you and I are part of the conspiracy to keep them real. <laughs> now, in telling you about my own life, one of the things that I spend quite a bit of time on is being with people as they're dying. Most people do that with somebody sooner or later, but they don't make a thing out of it. But um, I do. It's a, a very desirable avocation. The reason I do it is because it keeps me at my own leading edge of consciousness. Because when you're with somebody who is facing their own death, there really isn't much space for bullshit, for uh, irrelevancies. I remember some years back, I was called to visit a woman who was dying in, she was in Marin, she was a 38-year-old lawyer, she had three children, I think, and uh, she was dying of a cancer of the brain, and it was Christmas Day that I came, and I arrived downstairs, and the father and the children met me, and it was very weird. I had just driven on the freeway, and um, I could hardly take off my coat, and they were pushing me upstairs to the woman because she was close to death. And I, they treated me a little bit like Santa Claus had come or somebody really, you know. So I came into the room, and the room was thick with the quietness that attends, often attends death. I came over, and I saw that it was all right to sit on the bed, and I sat at the bedside, and she couldn't speak. And I found myself starting to do my Ram Dass visiting the dying routine. Because I know how to be wise and, you know, charming and philosophical and religious and present. But it's all a routine. It's because I'm supposed to do something. Since I came, I'm supposed to do something. And at some moment I looked in her eyes and I saw that she was so far beyond that. She was just waiting for me to finish all my nonsense. And very quickly, she and I just went into another plane of consciousness together, where I wasn't visiting a dying woman. She wasn't dying, and I wasn't living, and I wasn't Ramdas, and she wasn't who she was, and we were just hanging out together. You here, I'm here. Far out trip, isn't it? What are you doing today while well, I'm dying? Ah. Oh. <laughs> it's like souls meet soul, soul meets soul. And we're looking at our incarnation together. And I come away from that experience feeling I've been in the presence of a great teacher. Over the years of working with people that are dying, I really think I've grown a lot through that as a spiritual practice. 
first of all, you can't really design another person's death. Just like you can't take away another human being's suffering, really. You sometimes can take away pain or fulfill needs, but that doesn't necessarily mean you take away suffering. Suffering has to do with karma. You can't die another person's death, and you don't even know why they're dying the death they're dying. You're only seeing it from a human point of view. And it's probably much more, and it is much more interesting than that. So one of the things I've learned is to be very spacious about the whole thing, to have fewer models of how a person's supposed to die. I don't know that they're not supposed to die screaming. Maybe they're supposed to die smiling. I mean, I have models from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I have models from Hinduism, from almost every religious tradition as to how people are supposed to die. But in every existential situation, there's a unique predicament. And I think it's just inappropriate when you have an elderly Jewish lady to read her the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Better you say the Shema with her, the prayer that you have on your lips as you die in Judaism. But in listening, what I've heard is that there is a... No matter which way a person's going towards death, whether they're going towards it screaming and pushing against it, or embracing it, or eager for it, or reticent, or whatever they're going, all of that at some level is a creation of their mind. It's a model they have of dying, just like the Tibetan Book of the Dead is, and all, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and all of the rest of it. These are all conceptual models. But the thing is that any moment in time is really not a conceptual model. It just is. And every time you conceptualize it, you in a sense imprison it in something that is much less than what it is. A moment is much richer than any concept you can have of it. If I try to describe what is this moment, the time I finish with the lights and the air conditioner and me and you and how we got here and all, and even that won't have anything. Like, what did you eat for dinner? And what's your past history about issues around death, for example? I mean, there are thousands of variables determining this moment. But there is a moment in people's dying when their conceptual models, including their model of themselves, their ego structure, which is another conceptual model, who I am and who you are and how it all is, all of it starts to fall apart. Because just as you can't take your money with you, you can't take your thinking mind with you either. That doesn't mean you can't take your wisdom with you. That's a whole other ballgame. But you can't take your thinking mind with you. So your thinking mind, which you really thought was who you were, starts to fall apart. Now, for most of us, in most of our lives, when that starts to happen, we, quote, pull ourselves together. Like when you get so far out, you start to lose it. Ooh. You go, what? And you bring yourself back. But the thing about the death process is you can't bring yourself back. It's like a maha acid trip. It's like, oh, here we go. Ah! You know, and there's no, hold up a second, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. You know, This is it. And, ah! Now, at that moment, when there's the turnaround from, this is how it is, to, 
I guess this isn't how it is. You know, that, that moment, that, <laughs> there is what I would, I mean, to, to steal a phrase, there is a window of opportunity. There is a spiritual door right there. And if you at that moment are surrounded by people who are, who are themselves terribly frightened of dying, they have a model about dying as a loss and so on, they are constantly looking at you as poor dear. Their minds are an environment which keeps pushing you back into your conceptual identity and treats this kind of floating out as if it is an error, a loss. But what I've learned is how to let my mind be so empty as to be an environment for another person to do what they need to do. So that if the person opens up at that moment and moves to a new level of consciousness, because I don't have any model of who I am or what I'm supposed to be doing there, I'm just here, emptying and just being. New level. Ah, here we are. So we're talking about thirst, and then there's a moment later, and the consciousness flips, and then the person says, wow. Now, if you're in one plane, you say, are you all right? But if you go with them, you say, yeah. You sort of just keep opening into the space they're in. It's a legitimizing, it's a resonance, it's a way in which a person can open into planes of reality where dying is not relevant. Because only certain planes of reality have time in them, future and past, and time has to do with birth and death, coming and going, this and that. Well, that's and that is really space, but time. So when you go into planes where time isn't, where everything just is, then there's just changing of forms somewhere or other going on. But the person isn't necessarily busy dying. And in that moment where there was a window of opportunity, suddenly you're with another being, just in space, present together, very light, very clear, very open to all of it. And all of the fear and anxiety about death is like leaving the smog behind as the plane pulls up above 5,000 feet. I had the really good fortune to be able to be with my father through his processes of dying for 10 years, actually. And during the last few years of his life, my father, who had been a very powerful and active and visible human being, became very quiet, turned inward. And often we just sit and look at the sunset and hold hands. And one man who had always had a difficult time with my father came and he said, Hi, how are you doing? My father just smiled at him. And the guy went out of the room and he said to me, He hasn't changed a bit. He still won't talk to me. And then my aunt came by, who loved my father immensely. Hello, George. How are you doing? And he just smiled at her. And she started to cry. Oh, George, what have they done to you? Meanwhile, Dad and I just holding hands, both having these kind of shit-eating grins on our face. Yeah. And I thought, isn't this bizarre? He's happy, I'm happy, and they're both miserable. And why are they miserable? Because he isn't who they think he should be to reinforce their security that they are who they think they are. 
that bizarre? We use each other continually that way, by the way. I'll be who you think. I'll, you, I'll let you be who you think you are if you'll let me be who I think I am. Okay, well, let's get married. <laughs> now, part of the reason that I can be so quiet in the presence of people dying, and uh, by the way, I have no idea how I'll be in the midst of my own death. You know, probably a hysterical addict of morphine. I don't know. <laughs> the drip, the drip. <laughs> But the reason is because since I've been working on my consciousness, I've become very settled in the part of reality that is not in time, in which there is no coming and going. And that doesn't mean that I deny the plane of reality where we're all meeting, where there's coming and going and where you're you and I'm me. It means that over these years, what I've learned to do, or what I'm learning to do, because I'm still very much in process, is to live simultaneously on more than one plane of consciousness. Many people live sequentially. They get high, they come down. They say, we're all one. Then they come down, they say, but it's my television set. You know? And they don't know how to integrate these different planes of reality. Because that is, to me, the great art form in spiritual work. Not just getting high, not just going to seeing that there is God and there's law and there's wisdom and there is a unifying presence that imbues everything with living spirit. That's the awakening. But finally, I figured out, and it took me maybe 10 years to figure this out, that getting high wasn't free. Because what getting high meant was that I was pushing away my lows. It's like people saying, I'm going to go live in the country because living in the city brings me down. So you're high as long as you're not in the city. That's not free. Free means you're free. City, country, old, young, dying, living, free. You're right here. It's just what it is. And it was only in the mid-70s that I turned my game around because up until then, I had been what was called a renunciate, meaning push away this stuff, this crass, crude, greedy, horrible thing called the physical, psychological plane and get high. Go to God. Be with the one. Be in the unity. Be in the beauty of it all. See everybody as loving souls. And just stay out there. Fast. Meditate. Turn on. Do whatever you can do, but stay out there. And keep all the stuff away that'll drag you back down. That's the model of renunciation. And it's very useful at the beginning of the journey, as Ramakrishna said, when you have a little tree, it's good to put a little fence around it so the cows don't walk on it. Later, when it gets to be a big tree, cows can get shade under it and lean against it. So what I realized at that point was that I had to do a 180-degree turn, and I turned around and realized that my incarnation, that my physical plane existence, was my curriculum for this karmic round, and that pushing it away wasn't my way to be free be enlightened, be liberated, be whatever you want to call that thing. So I started to turn towards my life rather than away from it. But the fact that I had spent so much time in these other planes meant that instead of being here looking up, for a while I was there looking here, 
It was like my base camp was shifted. But then gnawing at me all the time was this mystical statement, there is nowhere to stand. And I realized that I couldn't stand out there looking back any more than I could stand here looking out. Is this too weird? Are you here? Am I getting too far out? Tell me, yeah? All right? He said, wonderful, that's like, that's as good as ginger tea. So, dealing with this, there's nowhere to stand, made me appreciate that although in our journey through life, we start as in a unified field, if you will, and then through socialization learn to be separate, which is supported by our all kinds of instinctual and these kinds of things in us. And in that zeal to become separate, we forget or lose the connection to the way we're part of everything. And we go through life being somebody. And then we awaken at some point. That's what happened to you. That's why you're here tonight. We awaken. We realize we've been had. That isn't the whole trip. We thought we were somebody because everybody around us thought they were somebody and they taught us to be somebody and there we are. And then you realize I'm not who I thought I was and that can happen in any kind of way. When you're ready, it happens. When you're not ready, it doesn't happen. You can imitate it, but it doesn't happen. But there's a moment when people awaken. They awaken to the fact that there are other planes of reality, that this is only a relative reality. It's not absolutely real. It's only just part of the truth. When you awaken, then the next thing you want to do is keep reliving the moment of awakening. You keep wanting to get high again. You keep wanting to come back into that place because when you're in that these other planes, there's no need systems. You're not hungry for love because you are love. It's all fine. You're at home. You've made it. The only thing is you can't stay there. You keep coming down. So you get very zealous in how you get there. In fact, much of life for most people is that. Buying a new car sometimes, other than the practical consideration. Oh, it's like making love, cooking a bouillabaisse. I don't know. Everybody's got a thing. So the next part of the sequence, sequence again, born, you're one, learn differentiation called socialization, become somebody. You're living in a whole culture of somebodies. Everybody's somebody. Then there's an awakening, and you realize that isn't how it is, and you look around, and you realize everybody's totally psychotic, which is really unusual. I mean, so you keep it to yourself, and you just try to get back there as often as you can to see if that's possibly true, that you... Because when you try to tell people this, <laughs> you tell the wrong person, you get locked up. After some time, that's when renunciation comes in because you so want to get high, you want to push away everything that brings you down, that catches you. Like advertising is designed to keep you being somebody wanting something. That's what it's designed about. So you don't want to sit and look at ads on television all day long if you want to be with God. Until later, then you can, then advertising is God too. But early on, it'll suck you into, I think I really want that slicer of vegetables <laughs> catch you <laughs> so you follow this renunciate path of pushing stuff away being around satsang or sangha or the community of people who also want to remember 
remember, awaken, be in the spirit, be with God, be with Allah, what, be conscious. That's the scientific religion. We'll be conscious together. Toy with nirvana. Live in the Atman. And then finally, as I just described, I don't know finally, but in the next stage, you realize that you can get high, but if you want to be free, meaning be high, you can't push away your lows because the highs include the lows. That is, like G. Manley Hall says, one who knows not that the prince of darkness is but the other face of the king of light knows not me. That's within the Christian metaphor, but you hear it? One who knows not that the prince of darkness is but the other face of the king of light knows not me. That is, behind the two there is one. And all the juice of religions and social systems lives within the realm of two, good and evil, dark and light, positive and negative, more and less. And behind all of it, there is one. So your job is to learn to come back from the one into the two, which also includes the many, of course, and to learn how to dwell simultaneously in the one and the many. And when you can do that, then you have a balance to be able to handle all the stuff that goes on in the world of many, like death. Death is happening on the world of two. There's living and dying. Behind living and dying, here we is. So in a way, it's the learning how to balance these planes of consciousness that, for me, Inherent in that is the mystery of how to live consciously and compassionately and joyfully. I mean, it's hard to explain to you how I can be with somebody I know very well who is dying, who I as a human personality have become very attached to, and I'm going to miss that person immensely. And my emotional, psychological, personality heart is breaking. And there is another part of me that is sitting absolutely empty and resonating in that emptiness is what I would call the cosmic giggle. The joy of the process of the manifestation into form of the formless and all that transformation going on. It's like having a ringside seat and watching the Wizard of Oz at work, watching the, the creation, the manifestation. Wow. Oh. It's what nuclear physicists experience in their innermost work. It's what Einstein was constantly telling everybody. The joy of seeing the laws, seeing the incredible beauty of the way the formless is in form and the relation of the form and the formless. It's what all the Buddhist Mahayana Sutra is about. The emptiness is no other than form and form is no other than emptiness. And that's Einstein's relativity. It's the same thing, actually. It's what Mozart heard that he transcribed. 
It's the incredible, awesome beauty of it all. And that includes death. It includes life. It includes all of it. You say, it's all beautiful, except that. Back to school. Because it is a school. And the thing that's hardest to buy is death. And almost all of the social systems are designed to avoid it. And now we're in the economic crunch where we now have avoided it so well that we can't afford to go on living. I mean, it's costing a fortune because technology keeps us alive so long. I mean, there are going to be, soon there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people over 100. Willis, whatever his name is, isn't going to be able to list them all on the morning news. You know, it's a big deal now. He'll have to go up to 110 or something like that. Isn't she a great-looking lady? And she's only 130. I mean, I can see it all, like, getting... What I noticed about this thing about the broken heart and the openness, it's like two levels of love, if you will. There's a certain quality of love that is what's called conscious love, or, I mean, there are many names, Christ love. Or... It's not love as opposed to hate. It's it's love in the same way that truth, it's not, it's just a finger pointing at the non-conceptual nature of being. And it says it's all love, or it's all truth, or it's all, it's God. God is another word for the same thing. When you are in love at that level, that means a plane of consciousness. You are in a plane of consciousness where there are no boundaries. Where there's not, you're not in love with somebody we are in love. You're in love. It's like we're in the stew together. I think it was in Heinlein's book, Stranger in a Strange Land. There were two guys talking, and one of them said, and at that level, if one of us was cooked in a stew and the other ate it, we'd be together, and it wouldn't matter who did the eating. And the other guy said, it wouldn't matter to me. A couple of years ago, I was working with a beautiful woman. She was just about to die from AIDS. She was 42, very talented, very intelligent, very wealthy, very beautiful. And she'd come to me about, you know, six months earlier and said, I'm going to die, and I'd like you to help me to die as consciously as I can. I said, well, great, because it's like somebody's come along saying, here's an opportunity for both of us to learn. Let's go. So we started to meditate together, study together, reflect together. And she'd bring me her stuff. I mean, she'd bring me the pain and the suffering and the family reactions. I mean, when I first met her mother over the bed, the mother said, it's so too bad she went and got this and she's caused all of us so much suffering. Mm. And you, you live with that too. And as time went on, and I got to know her better and better, I psychologically started to fall into love with her. The other level of love, the relational love, the I love you the way you are in this plane. And I began to not want her to die. And I felt these two forces in me both getting strong, both one was very strong and one was getting stronger. I'll just share an interesting and complex moment in that whole process just to bring you to exactly the kind of stuff that I 
would struggle with in a situation like this. She and the doctor and I had agreed that the three of us would make decisions about her medication together, be collaborative, so that she wouldn't have such pain that it would obsess her consciousness, but she wouldn't be put out so that she could stay conscious. Very near the end, she had a um, intravenous feed here that went into a blood vessel that went into her lungs and it got infected and it blocked and so she was coughing or choking to death really and she was just coughing continually and you know when somebody you love is coughing and they can't stop coughing and they're coughing and coughing you kind of want to you want to do something about it and she and I had been checking in even as things got worse and worse changing more and more we'd look at each other and there was always peace with us we had done a lot of good work together but into this whole situation had come my personal attachment to her and my not wanting her to suffer. And at one point, the doctor came in. I'd been sitting with her for about eight hours, and she had been coughing all that time. The doctor came in. He said she was not able to make decisions at this point. She was just barely coming into consciousness. And she, he said, I can give her something that will stop the coughing, but it will make her not conscious. And he looked at me and I found myself saying nothing because I couldn't stand her coughing. She could stand her coughing, I couldn't stand her. And so they gave her the medicine, she went unconscious and she died. Some subtle level, that's a betrayal. At another level, it's the truth of me as a human. I mean, that's what she got, she got me. It's taking me a long time to learn the way in which compassion is not fuzzy, fuzzy-wuzzy stuff. Compassion is, is the sort of discrimination. She's a good example of part of what I was learning in that situation, that I kept falling into that deeper other quality of love, just deeper and deeper with her. We were just coming into a presence together. We, we, we just luminously present together. Now, in order to be in that with another person, you have to have felt safe enough to let down your boundaries to include all their stuff, too. So for her, I had to deal with all of the social stigma that she was experiencing because of having AIDS, her family's reactions, um, the, the symptomatology of her body, the pain, the uncertainty, the opportunistic nature of the infection, all of it just was like, yeah. It's like getting buffeted, like getting beaten upon by these forces. If you can handle one more digression at this point, I don't know, even know what we're digressing from, but my cold, that was it. Last year, I was doing a course called Reaching Out in Oakland, which was a 10-week course that was videotaped for a public national public broadcast. And in doing that, I interviewed a number of incredible people to include cuts of the interviews in the program, people like the ecologist Tom Berry and John Seed, wonderful, all kinds of wonderful people. And one of the people I interviewed was uh, Zalman Schachter, Rabbi Zalman Schachter. 
And I said to Zalman, if you were an Israeli, what would you say to a Palestinian? Zalman said, oi. Oi. Such a problem. And we both felt the weight of that oi first. And then he said, before we can be together, we have to learn how to grieve with one another. To follow this digression a little further with another digression, last year, a group of us were teaching a course called Spirituality for Social Activists. It was people who were out on the firing lines from all the things like Greenpeace and stuff. And there was a lot of a subsidy and the, a group came together, about 100 people. And for five days, we were together. Uh, incredible in, in Massachusetts. So after the second day, there was a, um, a group of people that met outside of the regular meetings that were made up of African-American and Latino Chicano people and Native American. And they came in and they stopped the whole thing and they said, we're not happy that this is all being run by, you know, white honkies and we want to take this over. I mean, they're social activists. What do you expect? So, you know, and it was great. I mean, I was completely defrocked, you know, right away. And I was delighted. I mean, this was great. It's much better than you think it's going to be. So we all had to spend the rest of the time figuring out how to do anything together. And what became clear was that we had to really learn how to grieve with one another. When they would say, you don't realize my pain, and I did my, what I now consider a cheap up-level, and said, of course you have pain, we all have pain, but we were all one. And they'd say, cut the one bullshit, you know. And I really had to hear that. I had to hear that one had to honor diversity in order to arrive at unity. You just couldn't deny the diversity to leap to unity. And the way to honor the diversity was to grieve with people. So what we created at that retreat was a fishbowl deal where a hundred of us sat around and then a few of us sat in the center at different times. At one time it was all people of color who would experience oppression because of their color. And they told their stories in the center of the circle and we all listened. And then there were women that sat in the center. And then there were white men that sat in the center. Believe it or not, they were explained about how they were oppressed by their oppression. I mean, it's hard being a white male in this society, you know, it's no bargain. And old people and gays and lesbians, I mean, all of us just, I was going in and out of the circle so fast, you know, and I... And it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I could suddenly be a person that sharing the pain I've had of various things in my own life. And there was everybody sharing it with me. And the result was by the fourth day, we were all in love with each other. We had grieved our way through into unity. So what I realized in working with dying, that I have to grieve my way into love. I have to open to all of the stuff of what that's about. And to open to suffering and pain is the art form of the game. And the ability to not go into denial and into reactivity, but to be with what is, requires the inner work to be rooted in the many planes of reality so that you can offset one plane with another because this plane of suffering is so intense and so massive and there's so much of it that if you just live on that plane, you burn out almost immediately.
And when you burn out, what you do is you close your heart and you become what's known as you become, I don't know, if you're a nurse or something, you become professionally warm. I mean, you know, a nurse who's living with people that are suffering all day long or a doctor that's literally, you know, most of them say, look, I've got to have some emotion for my family life. I can't. So they, they kind of become like stewardesses and, you know, those kind of people that are terribly concerned, but nothing's happening. And I don't mean all stewardesses or all nurses or anything. I mean, this is a survival mechanism. When you've got 100, 300 people getting on a plane every two hours, you know, and you're going to be genuinely warm with each person. Wow, you must be a saint. And if I can look and feel one of the deepest sicknesses of our society, of our lives, it's the armoring of our hearts. It's that we are literally afraid of our own hearts. We are afraid of the intensity of the emotional reaction to the suffering that we would see if we just look at what is. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.